In the middle of the last century, A.W. Tozer made the following observation. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, what you think God is like is the most determinative factor for the kind of person you will be. How you consider God to be reveals truly the kind of person you yourself are. Tozer went on to say this, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. What you believe about God matters. It shapes the way that you think and the way that you see the world. It will determine your personal life. Beliefs about God shape churches. They also shape societies. They shape nations. If the last year has taught us nothing else, it has surely revealed that this nation, and tragically, many of the Christians in this nation, have largely forgotten God. And God cares about that. We might even say that God takes that personally. He particularly cares about the way people who claim to know him and worship him think about him. If you want a glimpse of how much God cares about the way people conceive him and speak about him, just go to the last chapter of the book of Job and see what God says to Job's three friends who had misrepresented God in their counsel to Job. He says in chapter 42, verse seven, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. These men misrepresented God. Their aberrant theology caused them to heap guilt upon Job rather than to help Job understand the ways of God that was going on in his life during that ordeal. Their counsel to Job was wrong because their view of God was wrong. And the Lord took it personally. He threatens to judge them severely. It matters to God what we think about him. It matters to him how we portray him to others. Psalm 150 is a portrait of what happens when people forget God and harbor wrong thoughts about him. And I want to explore this psalm with you this, this, this afternoon. It's Psalm 50, not 150, as we consider what God says to us about himself concerning his own nature and how we as his people should consider him. So please take a copy of scripture and open up to Psalm number 50. Psalm number 50, because we're simply going to work our way through this Psalm to hear why God calls us to take seriously our considerations of him. Hear the word of the Lord, Psalm number 50. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. 
Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Wrong living before God springs from wrong thinking about God. Asaph was a seer, a psalm writer during the time of King David. And this psalm that bears his name divides quite easily into four sections. In verses one through six, we have the introduction where God calls a tribunal, summoning heaven and earth to witness his righteous judgment on his covenant people. And then beginning in verse seven, we have two divisions of the psalm. Verse seven through 15, he indicts the formalistic, ritualistic worship of his people. And then verses 16 through 21, he indicts the hypocrites among his people. And then in verses 22 and 23, we have the conclusion where he offers words of warning and words of hope. This psalm is designed to warn us, to teach us, and to call us to consider how we conceive of God and where our thoughts of God are too small to repent, to return to him, to seek his favor and the provision that he has made for us in the sacrifice that he alone accepts. Wrong living before God springs from wrong thinking about God. Well, let's consider the summons in verses one through six. God will judge his people. It's quite clear from this. This is a warning. He's telling us of what he will do. There are several truths about God that are shown to us in this summons. One is in verse one, that he is the true, the only God. The mighty one, God, the Lord. There are three names used for God in that one sentence. El, Elohim, and Yahweh. 
together showing us that this is the God with whom we have to do in this world. Alexander McLaren says that El speaks of God Almighty, Elohim as the object of religious fear, and Yahweh or Jehovah as the self-existent and covenant God. So as the true God, the only God that is, he summons all creation and he does so with all authority from the earth, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the heavens above, the earth below. We see in verse three that he is fearful and righteous in his judgment. He does not keep silence. Why? Because he cannot keep silent. He cannot face the disloyalty of his people and remain silent. Faithfulness to himself and his own glory move him to arise and execute judgment. Notice the language, a devouring fire and mighty tempest that accompany him. These are echoes of how he appeared on Mount Sinai when he gave his law to his people as he led them out of Egyptian bondage. On that occasion, he spoke as the lawgiver. Here he envisions the occasion when he will speak as the one who judges on the basis of that law. His righteousness and judgment is unimpeachable. Verse six says, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. And notice who it is that he has in focus with this judgment. It's his own people, verses four and five. His people, my faithful ones, he says, gather to me. So the summons is made by the only true God calling heaven and earth to witness his fearful, righteous judgment against his own people, those who are called by his name. It may well be this is the psalm that Peter had in mind when he writes in 1 Peter 4, 17, it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. God's people need to be called to account for how we are living before the God whose grace we enjoy, whose name we bear. Brothers and sisters, as we look around at the godlessness in our society, and we pray, rightly so, for God to intervene. We must not fail to look within and honestly face and own and repent of our own God forgetfulness, our own misrepresentations and neglect of God, our own failures as his people to honor him as the only God. It's appropriate that verse six ends with Selah because this Revelation of God warrants a pause in meditation. Again, to consider the God before whom each one of us one day will stand to give an account. The God with whom we have to do. God cares what people think about him. And so should we. After announcing his coming judgment of his people, the psalm shifts to look at two specific categories of people whom the Lord calls out in judgment. First is those who worship God in a merely formal way. They're formalists. Their formalities are what invigorate them in worship. And the second are those whose lifestyle is openly hypocritical, denying the very things that they take upon their lips and profess. Let's look at verses seven through 15. We see that God rejects those whose worship is merely formalistic. The worship that God requires of his people is both inner and outer. It involves what we do physically 
and what we do internally. Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4 that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So our worship is to be regulated by God's word. We worship God, yes, in form, but we must worship him in substance as well. People whom the Lord reproves in verses seven through 15 were outwardly doing many right things, but they were doing them without proper heart devotion or proper understanding that is rooted in faith. And so they became content to just go through the motions to engage in the ritual. Notice verse eight, he does not rebuke them for their outward compliance to his prescriptions. It's not for your sacrifices, I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are constantly before me. They were doing the appropriate things that God commanded them to do. They were offering sacrifices. They were even doing it continuously. They were sacrifices offered to God were a regular part of their lives. He rebukes them for their wrong inward attitude and understanding. He says that he won't accept their bulls or goats because of what's in their hearts and minds when they offer them, in verse nine. And the reason that I say that's why he refuses to accept their offerings is because of what we see in verses 10 through 13. God doesn't need our offerings. And he gives two specific reasons why that is true. Verses 10, 11, and 12, it's because he owns everything. What are we gonna give to God that he doesn't own? He owns the cattle on the thousand hills. He owns the hills. He owns all the birds, all that moves in the fields. He's independent. He's self-existent. And as he points out in verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. So away with any idea that when we come before God to worship him, that we're somehow adding to him, that we're giving him something that he would be deprived of if we withheld it. He owns everything. Verse 13, he needs nothing. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. How foolish for us to ever slip into the mentality of thinking that when we offer anything to the Lord in worship, that we are somehow making available to him that which he needs. God rejects their formalistic worship, not because they were doing the wrong things outwardly, but because they were harboring wrong thoughts about him inwardly. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 15 when he quotes the prophet Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. When God looks upon the worship of his people, he often accepts the inner intention for the outward action. But he never accepts the outward action for the inner intention. They misperceived God. They harbored wrong ideas about him, even as they outwardly complied with his prescriptions. They thought that somehow their sacrifices were doing something for God. So all of their religion had degenerated into mere formality. No heart engagement. No drawing near to the Lord by their affections being stirred up 
with a sense of their dependence upon his provision for them. As a result, their religion was sterile. It was empty. It was worthless. God rebukes them. But he doesn't just rebuke his people and reject their worthless worship. He goes on and instructs them in verses 14 and 15 about proper worship. And notice that he mentions three things in those two verses that constitute properly approaching him in worship. And the emphasis is on the inner life. It's on their hearts. Verse 14, it's offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. How do you do that? Thanksgiving comes from within. You cannot offer thanksgiving to the Lord apart from receiving his grace and recognizing that you have been treated in a way that you do not deserve to be treated. His gracious provision meets our needs. And as we consider it, we rightly understand it and we contemplate it, then we will indeed respond with thankful hearts. Secondly, he says, fulfill your expressed devotion to him. In verse 14, perform your vows to the most high. That's what a vow is. It is a commitment that you've expressed to God that is made out of devotion to God. And so fulfill that which you have inwardly begun in making a vow. And then verse 15, call on him. Call on me, I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's the way it works. We have need, God has provision. We call on him and he supplies our need and he is glorified in supplying that need. We call upon the Lord when we have a sense of our need of what only he can supply. And when he answers and saves, then he is glorified in that very act. When we worship God as a mere formality, we do not approach him with dependence upon his grace because we have no sense of our need of it. We're confident enough to go through the motions. We know the words to the songs. We know where to turn in our Bibles. We know the right words to cross our lips in confession and in prayer. We know how to do the right things at the right times and we can go about doing them for years without ever coming honestly to face the reality of our abject dependence upon him. Those Old Testament bloody sacrifices, which were regularly being offered up by his people, they were designed to lead God's people to Christ. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system was designed to teach one overarching truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. They had to be constantly repeated. Why? Because there was no power in them. There was no power in the daily, the nightly, the monthly, the seasonally, the annual sacrifices that were offered up to God. The power was in the ultimate sacrifice toward which they pointed, to that lamb without blemish or spot, to the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to Jesus Christ, the son of God incarnate, who would come into the world and offer up himself as that sacrifice once for all time to take away sin. That's what the people of God in the Old Testament were being taught to see, to anticipate, to trust. But it all became just so much formality, ritual, going through the motions. Any attempt to worship God outside of Christ is vain. 
It's empty. It's unacceptable. But as we come to see what God's provided for us in his son, and we recognize our sin's been paid for by his sacrificial death, we cannot help but offer up to God praise and thanksgiving for such grace. We see our sin. We see his grace in Christ. We see in Christ our forgiveness, our reconciliation to God, and our hearts respond with praise, with thanksgiving. Now, I know this is a Bible conference, and I know that you most likely have come here because you're a Christian and you desire to hear more of God's word. But I also know that Jesus had 12 apostles and one of them was unconverted. And so I would be a fool to think that in a gathering like this, that there could not be anyone who's unconverted. And it may well be that you come to this conference and you sense that yes, there's something not right inside of you and, and you go through the motions and you have made the attempts and you've gone to expense and length to come here this week. Could it be, could it be that your inability, your lack of engaging your whole heart to God in worship is because you have never come to receive Christ Jesus, his provision for sin? Could it be that your wrong thoughts of God have put you on a trail of thinking that if you just do better, you just do more, you just do it a little bit better, that then you can have hope that God accepts you. Oh, friend, if that's true of you, the good news is no, God has sent his son for sinners like you and me. There's hope for you and turn from your sin, trust Jesus, throw up the white flag and God will accept you and you will find the grace that you desperately need in Christ. But brothers and sisters, isn't it true of us that we can fall into patterns of formality? It's one of the dangers of growing spiritually is you know what to do. You know what to say. You know how to act. Have you ever just found yourself in the midst of trying to worship God privately or corporately? and your mind snaps back and you think, where have I been the last five minutes? It happens, it happens. What's our need? Our need is to return back to Christ and to own that temptation we fall into of engaging in mere formality and thinking that's enough. God has grace for his erring children who fall into formalism. Confess your sin. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Your father loves you. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will help you to put to death that sin of being contented with formalism in worship. God rejects such formality. But notice in verses 16 through 21, he condemns hypocritical living. Verse 16 makes a, a strong pivot. But to the wicked, God says, what right do you have to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips. The third century father, Origen, was once called on to read this psalm aloud in the school where he taught. And when he came to verse 16, he had to stop and he began to weep bitterly as he considered what a great thing it is to proclaim God's word, his law, his covenant, while at the same time being a poor, miserable human being and sinner. And yet how many today take 
the word of God flippantly. Recite the things of God thoughtlessly. Without consideration of the weightiness of the God whose word we are speaking. There are hypocrites among God's people. They pretend to be what they never intend to be. They profess to be what they're not willing to be. They recite my statutes, God says, and profess to be in covenant with him, though in God's sight, they are still wicked. Their inward attitudes betray their outward professions. And though they recite his statutes to others, inwardly they're opposed to God's statute for themselves. They love to point out other people's faults, but they chafe when God's word is applied to their own sins. He says, they hate my discipline. They disregard his word. You cast my words behind you. They pick and choose what they want to heed from the Bible. And they try to downplay or reinterpret altogether the scriptures that they want to conform to their pattern of sinful living. Now, this kind of hypocrisy is obvious in those who live blatantly hypocritical lives. It's also evident in those who openly distort parts of God's word by claiming to be Christians while identifying themselves by their sin. As a growing number of people are doing in our society today, describing themselves as homosexual Christians, transgendered Christians, prating about as ethnically prideful Christians, abortion-affirming Christians. Such hypocrisy God condemns. But the kind of hypocrisy condemned here is just as wicked when it operates in more subtle, less blatant ways. You see it wherever professing Christians are embarrassed by any part of God's word. Embarrassed to the point where they downplay it or ignore it altogether. This is what is operating in those who sign our confessions of faith and loudly proclaim their belief in the inerrancy of scripture, but then downplay the sexual perversions that destroy people's lives today by saying, you know, God only whispers about sexual sin. Or claiming that homosexuality is not sinful because, you know, Jesus never said a word about it. As if the words written in red in the New Testament are somehow more inspired than those written in black. Brothers and sisters, this kind of hypocrisy is what is going on when professed inerrantists engage in hermeneutical gymnastics to reinterpret the scriptures in such a way that the original authors wouldn't recognize their own words. This is what is going on in passages like 1 Timothy 2.12, which says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. When some who profess inerrancy get finished interpreting this verse, they tell us what Paul really meant is he does permit women to teach men and exercise authority over them in the church. God comes and he speaks severely to those who would live hypocritically while bearing his name, 
Such people disregard his law with impudence. You see that in verses 18 through 20. Here he mentions three of the Ten Commandments. Obviously, what he has in mind is that summary of God's moral order for his world. Thievery is mentioned, the Eighth Commandment in verse 18. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You consent with a thief. It doesn't mean that you go out and commit grand larceny necessarily, but it does mean that you're content to do less than honest business deals so you can gain a financial advantage. It does mean that you're content to do less than an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. It includes justifying your efforts to take advantage of someone because after all, everybody does it. Verse 18 also mentions adultery, the seventh commandment. You keep company with adulterers, not limited to the physical act of adultery, but also includes, as Jesus says, looking at another person with a lustful eye. It includes being entertained by adultery. It includes using pornography. Brothers and sisters, you don't need me to detail to you how the entertainment industry has debased God's good gift of sex in our day. Yet how easy it is for us to become just hardened to that reality and let those images of entertainment come into our hearts and minds. If you've become desensitized to the misuse of God's good gift of sex in our day, then hear this word from our God. Hear his penetrating examination of this and condemnation of this sin and repent of your sin and look to your God. Seek his forgiveness, seek his cleansing. He will help you. You may need to confide in a brother or sister to help you fight this sin and put it to death as you continue on your journey. Do not keep company with adulterers. Verses 19 and 20, he invokes the ninth commandment. You give your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. People who play fast and loose with the truth are in vision here. Practicing deceit is a habit cutting down those you ought to be building up and not sparing those that ought to be the closest to you so that you would most sincerely try to preserve and protect their good name. Well, these are descriptions of people who claim to know God, who even speak for God while they throw his word behind their back. Spurgeon says how horrible and evil it is that to this day we see men explaining doctrines who despise precepts. They make grace a coverlet for sin and even judge themselves to be sound in the faith while they are rotten in life. We need the grace of the doctrines as much as the doctrines of grace. And without it, an apostle is but a Judas and a fair spoken professor is an errant enemy of the cross of Christ. In verse 21, we have the reason and the result of this hypocritical living. The reason because they misconstrued God's patience. These things you've done, and I have been silent. They think his patience means acceptance. They think his silence constitutes indifference. Well, God hasn't struck me dead, so maybe it's not that serious. But nothing could be further from the truth. They also misconceived God's person Look at this. You thought that I was one like yourself. 
What an indictment. You thought I was altogether like you. At creation, God created man in his own image. And since the fall, man's been returning the favor, conceiving of God as if he were like us. Luther made this very point in his argument against Erasmus and the bondage of the will when he says to Erasmus, your thoughts about God are too small. Too often, those who claim to be Christians live as if God does not exist. They live as practical atheists. That's why they practice deceit. That's why they indulge in sexual immorality and regard stealing as insignificant. Since God doesn't intervene immediately to disrupt them, he must not really care. I mean, after all, nobody's perfect, right? I understand those kinds of faults in people. Surely God understands too. In this psalm, God intends to destroy that kind of foolish thinking about him. He is aware and he cares. He cares how those who bear his name conduct themselves in his, word, in his world. This folly of humanizing God has marked every age of fallen humanity. And it has been most certainly put on display in this prideful, stuck-up age of the 21st century in America. That's why over the last 10 months, we have witnessed so many churches and evangelical leaders stumbling badly in the face of governmental overreach or when threatened of being canceled by the many minions of the modern Orwellian ministry of truth. It's because we've forgotten God. What's the result of such forgetfulness, such misconceptions of God? He rebukes. He charges his people with crime. He's not like us. He sees. He cares. He keeps a record and he says, don't think that there's not going to be judgment for this. After rejecting their formalistic worship and condemning their hypocritical worship, the psalm closes in verses 22 and 23 with calling for repentance and faith. Mark this, verse 22, then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. He reveals the ultimate cause for their formalistic worship and their hypocritical living. What is it? They forgot God. You who forget God. Matthew Henry says, forgetfulness of God is at the bottom of all the wickedness of the wicked. And God calls his people to account for this. He says, mark this. Wake up. Take note. Hear what I am saying about this. He warns them of the wrath to come in stark language to be torn apart with none to deliver. And he extends to them mercy and grace. Do you see the way that he issues his warning in verse 22? Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces. Do you hear that hint of grace? Do you hear that hope? Consider this. Consider this so that you won't be torn to pieces. I'm telling you this now to warn you, to call you, to spare you from that which will be your end if you do not repent. All of God's warnings and threats of coming judgment are really words of mercy. When God sent Jonah to Nineveh, 
Do you remember the message he gave him? 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Not repent, not be reconciled to God. 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And when Nineveh heard that word of judgment as a warning, they repented and God showed mercy. All of his words of judgment and warning are filled with mercy. He could simply destroy without warning and be fully vindicated. Look at the final instruction he gives in verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Come offer thanksgiving to God. How? How? By bowing to him, by acknowledging his grace and your need of his grace, by trusting yourself fully to him in the way that he has prescribed. He says, order your way rightly. How? By repenting of your sin. Agreeing with God and what he says about us. Humble yourself before the Lord. Don't quarrel with his diagnosis of your situation, but confess that he's true. Confess that he's right and receive the provision of grace that he makes for sinners in his son. This is a call to repentance and faith. God calls his people to turn away from sin, to submit ourselves to him, and he promises his salvation, his grace will be in our life. That is precisely why God sent his son into the world, to save sinners from their sin, to save those who merely have gone through the motions and formality and worship, to be saved from their formalism, to save hypocrites who have become accustomed to living hypocritical lives. Jesus Christ died for hypocrisy. So turn from your sin. Don't go on living hypocritically. Be reconciled to God. Trust him. Be restored to God today on the basis of his grace and provision for Jesus Christ who shed his blood for sinners. Brothers and sisters, God's judgment may be delayed, but it will never be denied. The warnings of his judgment are real and they will be exacted just as he says. Therefore, we should live lives of repentance and faith. Hebrews 10, 31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Make no mistake, what a man sows that he will also reap. When the day of judgment comes, those who have not obeyed the truth in the heart, who have lived their lives misjudging God and thought that he was altogether like we are, those who have forgotten him and neglected his provisions of grace in Jesus will be subjected to the unending wrath and punishment of God. You see the way God describes this horrific punishment? I will tear you apart. There will be none to deliver you. No savior on that day. No hope on that day. What a dreadful prospect. And it awaits everyone who is content to go on thinking that God is the way that he isn't. And thinking that he isn't the way that he's revealed himself to be. In his 1983 Templeton Awards speech, Russian intellectual Alexander Solzhenitsyn made this point 
as he searched for reasons to explain the horrors of the Bolshevik Revolution. That revolution decimated his homeland. In that speech, he made the following comments. More than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. Over the last several years, and especially the last 12 months, we have witnessed the crumbling of the foundations of our society. We've seen it happen before our very eyes under the relentless attack from leftists who celebrate the massacre of the unborn, who reject the creational realities of maleness and femaleness, who want to overthrow all hierarchies, who are committed to deconstructing countless institutions and society itself, and they do so all in the name of pursuing justice and love in the world. Even more disturbing is that these assaults have been mounted and aided by heretofore trustworthy Christian leaders and organizations. And as they've been mounted, some of those organizations have appeared to be paralyzed into inaction or even worse, actually assisted the social terrorists by telling them that God's people will be living properly and God himself will be pleased if we just follow the world's agenda for justice and kindness. The situation today is much like it was in the second century BC in the days of Judah when the wicked Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes led many Jews to turn away from the true worship of Yahweh. When Daniel prophesied about this, he said in Daniel eleven thirty two 32 of this wicked king, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Brothers and sisters, the only way to stand firm and not be led astray in our day is to know God. Know God. Study God. Consider how God has revealed himself to us in his word. Let his revelation of himself dictate all of our thoughts about him. It is then and only then that we will be prepared to stand firm and take action. The superficial Christianity that is so rampant among us today is due to the widespread faulty thinking about God. And what we need more than anything else in this historical hour is to fall before the God who is, to confess our sinful forgetfulness and misrepresentations of him, to trust him for his grace, and to resolve by that grace from this day forward in the power of the Holy Spirit to be wholeheartedly willing and ready 
from now on to live for him. Oh, may God enable us and make it so. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've not left us in this world to ourselves to try to figure out how we should live, how we should think of you, what we should do. And this afternoon, we confess that we have often allowed our thoughts to fall into sinful patterns of considering you. Forgive us of such sin. Come and by your spirit, humble us before your word and help us to believe everything that your word says. To accept the rebukes and corrections of scripture that we might be taught and trained in righteousness. Work in us so that the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent into the world for sinners like us, might be honored and glorified in our lives. Hear our prayers for his sake. Amen.